been working on a goatish cry for years. And people say, they keep saying, what's the matter? You got something stuck in your throat? You know? <laughs> so let's hear, uh, how about a good goatish cry? Who's got one down there? <laughs> oh, come on. All right, that's no passion, gang. This would be a lousy crowd for an orgy. <laughs> you know, it takes a certain amount of talent. Has it ever occurred to you that if you were to arrive at this Bacchanal, you ever watched uh, pictures? Have you ever seen a Grecian vase where they're having a Bacchanal and everybody's throwing garlands? You know, but they're leaping in the air. That takes a lot of talent. Can you imagine yourself arriving at a Bacchanalian ruffle and you got a bad knee? You just walk around, I got a bad knee, you know? <laughs> And you got a pair of those pants, you know, with the goat things, with the, with the cloven hoof, and you got a bad knee. <laughs> Wouldn't you like to wake up in the morning sometime, men? At 7 o'clock, the alarm goes off, and you wake up, you know, and you feel kind of crummy. You go into the john, you look into the mirror there, and look in. And overnight, you have grown a pair of tiny spike horns. <laughs> Boy, would that go at the office. <laughs> Can't you see yourself walking down to the Steno's pool? That baby. Two little things. <laughs> That's just the way I comb my hair, you know. <laughs> well, all right. We're back at the limelight. This cesspool of <laughs> friendly, happy corruption. By the way, speaking of... Speaking of... Uh, of, of a borderline sin that we all know about. How many of you are underwear ad fans? <laughs> well, come on, admit it, gang. <laughs> That's strictly a male thing. All of them say, what is he talking about? You know? Well, I grew up with the Sears Roebuck catalog. In fact, my very early education was obtained in the lingerie department. <laughs> And that's what, are you aware that out in the Midwest that a kid is not allowed to be alone with the Montgomery Ward catalog? <laughs> you didn't know that, did you, gang? Well, that's, a, of course, Playboy's taking the place of that. And, and you know, it, it's a funny, how, how do you handle those things? No, I'm serious about that. That is a new, is a new problem in our world, in the American world. I had this happen to me the other day, and I don't know quite how to handle it. You're with this little kid. Now, this is a real hip-type, intelligent, smart, going-to-a-good-school type kid. You know, with the little chino pants. He's got the jazzy little Brooks Brothers tie, button-down, basket-weave shirt. You know, the snotty kind, you know. He's got a big ducks, you-know-what, uh, haircut, you know. He's already not only accepted in Princeton, he's in his third year already. He's only nine, you know. You know that kind of scene. He's not there yet. So you're with this little kid walking around. And a little kid looks up at you and says, Hey, listen, uh, did you hear the story about the time the traveling salesman who was selling bound volumes of Kierkegaard arrived? And he is telling you the most obscene story you've heard in the week. What do you, how do you handle that? I mean, he's telling it to you, not surreptitiously. 
just telling you a dirty story. See? You said, what do you think of that? And he says, ha, 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 ha. <laughs> And he has told you a story of such esoterica that you don't quite understand it. <laughs> he says, boy, how do you like that? And you go, ha, 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 Would you like an ice cream cone? Uh, <laughs> Well, this is a new problem. You know, in fact, I'll tell you something maybe you parents who are listening don't know about. But I'm in a peculiar position. I get probably 500 letters a week from 15 and 16-year-old kids who write to me and tell me what they really think, stuff they would never tell their old man. In fact, I'll never forget a couple of years ago, I get this letter from this kid. He says, hey, Shep, I'm 16, you know, and he says, I'm an underground listener. Every night I, I, I listen in my sack, and I, I got my transistor radio plugged in. He says, Shep, I got, a, I got a question I want to ask you. What do you do, Shep? I've got an old man. My dad really likes Ike. How do you handle that, Shep? <laughs> you know, and the kid goes on, he starts to analyze Endgame by Samuel Beckett. He winds up with a brief reference to Janae and signs off with a typical kid line that he says, please send me your picture, I'm 16. So that's a special new problem. Well, somebody here about 15 minutes ago says, tell the story of the GI. This is the time of the year to tell it. I'm going to tell you an army story. And this is an army story that happened to me. And the first time I told this one on the air, let me tell you what happened. I wasn't off the air 15 minutes when I got three calls from guys who had been in my outfit and remembered the scene. They called up and they says, oh my God, yes, yeah, Jeff, wow, you must have been in my outfit. <laughs> they didn't know. Well, let me tell you what it was like. This would make, I think, a picture of army life, the kind you never hear about. You know, I, I'm, every time I look on, on the late movies, they have, you have a, an, an army story or a war story. And they're never about the army, the way it really is. They never are, you know. It, it always shows rip-torn. He's charging up a hill, and he's saying, follow me, man, you know. That ain't the army. <laughs> The only time I ever saw a lieutenant lead a bunch of guys to get a pillbox, they were 30 miles ahead of him, you know. And he kept hollering, go ahead, go ahead, you guys. Call back when you get it. I got the phone here, you know. And he laid flat. You know, you've never seen a guy 13 and a half millimeters thick. This is the guy from OCS. Well, nevertheless... <laughs> I'll tell you a, a, a funny scene, a, a little moment that has always haunted me. Every one of us, having gone through a big thing, whether, if you go to college, you go to college four years, many of you have gone to college. Have you ever seen college life ever really in a movie? I mean, with Jack Oakey, <laughs> Betty Grable, you know, down there dancing on the library tables, you know. <laughs> You know that whole scene, and Tom Brown is there with a big C. He's running out on the field, his arm is broken, you know, and old Professor Slobbit has refused to pass him in math, and the last instant they let him go out on the field, he goes out like that, you know. 
And there's always that announcer with the hat on the back of his head, you know. He says, folks, it looks like State is putting in. They're putting in number seven. It's Tom Brown is coming into the game, folks. Yes, this is going to be a great game. You know, it's always played by Lee Tracy. <laughs> and he's got his hat on the back of his head, you know, and he ticks the thing up. He says, we have just 30 seconds to play, folks. I see, uh, oh, yes, there is Betty Grable, the prom queen down there. She is getting ready to lead a cheer. And have you ever seen real college life portrayed? Real college life? That kind of molasses, strange. Everybody sort of wandering through the, you know, where, where, where the food is served, you know. Everybody's walking next to the steam tables. You know, it's kind of like Belson revisited, you know. And they're all walking along like this. You know? It's very different from what they show. You know? Have you ever noticed that in, in magazines like Playboy and in Vogue, right about now they're preparing the back-to-college issue. It always shows about 38 girls with the high argyle socks and the Toreador pants back to college. And it shows their Ferrari back of them, you know. And there's a whole bunch of bronze-looking guys wearing those jazzy coats they always wear and those things, you know. And they all look like they're 107 years old compared to the real little, the little peanuts you see in college all walking around, pasty face. And they actually, some of them actually take those ads for real. And they go out and buy one of those jackets. You know, with the hoods and all that stuff. And you can always see this guy on the campus. He's the one guy that honestly believed Esquire. <laughs> and he arrives with his basket weave pants, you know. He's got his hood and he's got his jacket and he's got all of his sweaters and stuff. Oh, is that a rotten feeling. <laughs> he arrives and the next thing you know, he's stuffing it all down the toilet, you know. <laughs> He's trying to get rid of that jazzy sweater with the V's, you know, and all that. <laughs> and he's putting back on his old Levi's and stuff, like when he was a kid. Well, this reality scene has always interested me. We go through college. You never see that portrayed, really, in novels. I, you really don't. How many of us have had love affairs with girls? We all have been involved with girls or with men. Or sometimes with both, I suppose. <laughs> Depends on who you are. After all, this is 1965, you know. But it's never portrayed in novels or plays the way it really is. It has a peculiar idealized quality. Have you ever noticed in plays, for example? I do a lot of writing, and I'm always curious how writers get the idea that people live in the middle of one continuous plot. And that's all they talk about. The door opens and the guy will run in and he says, Charles, Charles, did you hear from Mabel? And he says, yes, yes, I just got a telephone call from her. And her father just called and said that he's going, he's there, got amnesia, you know. He says, yes, just a minute, I'll be right back. And then he says, hello, Mabel, Fred just came here. Yes, hello. You say the Clifford is now joining the army? For heaven's sakes, yes, wait, I'll call you. Yes, I'll be right back. And he sends a telegram. Never in the middle, I saw Virginia Woolf. And for four hours, these people yelled at each other. Never once did one guy say, say, uh, uh, excuse me, one minute, it's a very exciting argument, but uh, where's the John? <laughs> In other words, reality never came into what they did, you know? 
Have you ever watched people really in the middle of the most fantastic... Hey, we're at ease up there. Now, come on. Now, just at ease for a minute. There's a place next door for you. Go ahead. <laughs> in the middle of our own individual great moments, great scenes. I remember I'm a kid. The first time I ever kissed a girl in the front seat of the car. Now, I had studied this very assiduously. I had studied at least 500 movies starring Priscilla Lane. I knew how it was done. I saw Andy Hardy and that crowd. I knew, you know, it was so great. You know, he'd just take her and they kiss her and her eyes would get sort of all, you know, all puddly, you know, and they'd sit there for a second. The music would come up. Well, I remember reaching over and, and, and putting my arm around this girl named Dorothy. Well, I got my arm around her. See, I'm sitting in the front seat of my Ford. And I says, <laughs> and, and you know, they never show you in movies that the seats are always a little too high. See, my arm is up like this. And I am getting a cramp. Because all the way down here, you know, <laughs> you know. And she's sitting there looking very romantic. And then I finally get it up again. You know, I go with that. Come here. You don't mind, do you, if I kiss you, Dorothy? She says, yes. Well, uh, well I'm going to kiss you anyway. And she says, all right, try it. It's okay. And I pull her like that and bang, she gets me with her knee. Boy, she gets me a crack. I don't know where she learned it, but my knee flipped up like that. And I hit the gear shift knob. And you know, to this day, I have a slight limp. Dorothy says, now try it again. I never once saw Andy Hardy have that problem. <laughs> and then I finally did, you know, I finally did get to the point where I kissed her. Actually did. This was about 19 light years later. I finally kissed her, and she tasted funny. <laughs> she tasted like sweet, sour red cabbage. <laughs> you know, and I said, gee, you had red cabbage for dinner, didn't you? <laughs> she says, yes. <laughs> she says, you had meatloaf. <laughs> gee whiz, you know. <laughs> Meatloaf fans. <laughs> well, you know, it, it, that is a funny scene. You never, you never see when, when here is Ingrid Bergman and Tony Perkins. <laughs> Isn't that an unlikely couple? <laughs> you know, so you have a feeling somehow that Little Orphan Annie is meeting King Kong. You know, guess which is which. <laughs> And so here's Tony Perkins, and you hear the music of Brahms come behind them. It's either Brahms or it's Tchaikovsky, something. Bum, 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 bum. Well, are you aware that at least 95% of the love affairs that I knew of around me as a child were finally consummated to the sound of Gene Autry <laughs> singing through his nose? Coming out of the radio, you are my sunshine, my lady sunshine. And you know, he grabs the Dorothy, that's, that's our song. You know, well, that's life, you know, as opposed to the, the, as opposed to the wonderful fictional image of it.
and I'm going to tell you a real story of the Army. Now, one thing you never... <laughs> I wonder what music is in her life. <laughs> you know, I wonder how many of us... How many of us had our most romantic music to the sound of commercials? <laughs> our most romantic moments. Oh, yeah, I can just see 50 years from now people buying LPs of favorite old songs of the past. Like, double your pleasure, double... That's the only song you can sing. <laughs> they don't write songs you can sing anymore. I imagine a lot of people just sing that, you know. Well, I'm... A... Now, I'm going to tell you a story about the Army. <laughs> Got to get back to that. <laughs> oh, man. Have you ever seen in any Army movie a troop train? Well, I've only seen one or two of them. And usually they just show you getting on the troop train or they show a bunch of guys getting off the troop train. And occasionally there is a shot in the troop train with Robert Mitchum. He's usually sitting there talking to James Whitmore. And they're talking about life, the future of Western man, and they're talking about the hell they are about to take part in. You know, that kind of thing. Well, let me tell you how a troop train really is. I'm in this company, see? And we have been for months on the edge of the abyss. Now, that's, that's the big fear in any time, you know, when a company's in wartime. There is one word that scares the living you-know-what out of Ooh, that is alert. When they say your company's on the alert, forget it. I mean, that's when the... You know, it's funny. In reality, it works the opposite. The instant a company is put on the alert, it becomes incredibly somnolent. Just walks over. <laughs> You can always tell the companies that were on the alert. All the other companies are marching around. There's always one company walking. That's the company that's about to hit the boat, you know? He knows that. Oh, is that a scary... They don't tell you where you're going, you know? You're not going on a guided tour of Bermuda. You somehow have a feeling that, that there, is no, there is no Tom Dooley in your life. The old first sergeant said, Come on down! We're having a good time down here in Guadalcanal. Hey, you know... Well, everybody is scared all the time, see? And yet, on the other hand, it's a kind of a peculiar two-edged fear. There is also the feeling of excitement, of the unknown. We all have this, see? And so old Company K, this dynamic, hard-hitting, mess kit repair company. <laughs> oh, yes, the 3162nd Mess Kit Repair Airborne Company. I was in a handle platoon, and and it's a hard-hitting crowd. We had two little crossed mess kits with a fork. It's our thing there, you know, and a little SOS under it. Really, it was SOS colored, actually. You'll explain that to her when you get home. Hey, wouldn't you like to see that old Signal Corps film that you used to see, fellas? You remember the Mickey Mouse? You'll have to explain that one. Every six months, for you girls who don't know what this is about, there was an army regulation where all the guys were called into this tin shed. And they would sit on these... Hey, Addies. They would sit... That's the KP again. They would sit on these hard wooden benches... And they know what's going to happen. If you've ever watched the same dull movie 138 times running consistently, you know exactly, you see. 
So they're all sitting there, tin hats, chewing gum, fatigues on. They smell with that peculiar aromatic compost heap quality <laughs> that you get with three-week-old fatigues that the laundry hasn't come back, you know, in the whole scene. Fatigues have a special smell about them. It isn't exactly perspiration. It's all kinds of things. It's anger, frustration, fear. That's French toast. It's all kinds of things. Oh, yeah, they eat French toast in the Army a lot, believe it or not. Made out of kerosene. So they have a special recipe. So we're sitting there, and wouldn't you love to see that movie once again? Revisiting old movies. There's the movie that comes on, and immediately it says, This is a classified film. And it's black. The, the, the movie screen is black. And it says, And then it says, A Signal Corps production. This is confidential material. Confidential, wow. And then it fades out, and there's another thing comes Army Signal Corps film 6SJ7GT. Oh, it's the Mickey Mouse again. They all open the same, you know. They, they euchre you in that way. And then the screen goes black, and then it goes white, and there is a man standing there. And who is it? It's old Judge Hardy. Yeah, you remember, you remember Andy Hardy's dad? You've seen those old movies? It's Judge Hardy. It's, what is Lewis Stone, I think? And he's looking down, and apparently they hired him because of that connection. But he's wearing eagles. Old Judge Hardy's made colonel, you know? And he's looking down at you, and he says, Men, as an officer in the Army Medical Corps, it is my duty to give you some classified information. He looks out of the film. You know, we're not used to having people look right out of the film at you. Classified information. Boom! He pulls it down, and 18 guys faint. <laughs> this is the result. And then 10 say, you know... <laughs> you know that great film. It really moves. And then... It's got a real plot. And then about... About two scenes later, there's this guy. They show him, see, and he's looking right at the camera. And he says, I would be glad to tell all you guys if I can help. I wonder what happened to that guy. I wonder if he's still working in films. <laughs> well, I, I, maybe I shouldn't tell you this, but that film actually got on television. <laughs> One night in a Midwestern city, which we shall... For the argument's sake, give a fictitious name. Cincinnati. <laughs> There's no city got a name that silly, see, so... And so it was a... You know, you, you have no idea what goes on in television stations. Now, most people think a channel is something big, official. It's like Chase Manhattan Bank. This is Channel 5, Channel 9, Channel 2. You know, very official. Well, actually, what a channel consists of is a sweaty, dirty, crummy little room and a couple of guys who are underpaid running a couple of bad projectors and plotting. Well, about 1.15, late at night in Cincinnati, on a channel which shall go nameless, a friend of mine was at the controls 
three guys, engineers, you know, and on would come the preparation, H, commercial, you know, and off it would go. And they're going through one of these endless, long, late-night movies, you know, a lot of Englishmen going, you know those films, you know, with the guys with the big hats and the white ties, and you see them, they go on and on and on. You don't think they were ever made. Can you imagine people paying money to see them? How depraved can you get? But there must have been a day when a guy planked on a buck to see. And it's kind of murky, shot underground, and they keep riding cars back and forth real quick, you know, jumping out and running around. Well, it was one of those films. And incidentally, are you aware that I, I saw these guys in the same television station do a great thing one night. They took one of those films and they merely played reel nine first. Then they played reel two. Then they put in one brief reel of a Jimmy Attlee movie. This is a hillbilly singer. Then they went back to the original movie, and they finally wound up with the third reel. And I came on and I said, you've seen tonight's feature presentation. We didn't get a single phone call. And our rating remained the same. So you begin to realize there's just a lot of klutzes out there in the dark. And it's just, they're just watching those flickering things. Yeah. You can put anything on there, little shadows you can make, you know. As long as you have the sort of background noise, where am I? Yes, I where am I? And occasionally shoot a gun, then they'll know they're there, you know. Boom, boom, boom. Make the sound of a galloping horse, you got him, see. They're watching like this. I'd, I'd love to see the idea of a real television viewer. You know, the kind that stays up until 4.30 in the morning, the late, 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 late show, doggedly, just sits and watches. That same Errol Flynn movie, he's seen it nine times in the last month. How many times have you seen Green Dolphin Street here, gang? On and on it goes. And then finally, on comes the Star Spangled Banner. You know, he sits there and watches. He's watching Andy Hardy. He's watching Errol Flynn. On comes Ingrid Bergman when she was six years old. Watches this. And then on comes that thing that says the late, 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 late show finale. And then the sound. Bum, 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 bum. And he goes. Dun, dun. The jets go. Ooh. He's waiting for El Flynn to come on again, you know. Chester Morris to be flying one of the jets, you know. And then all of a sudden it goes off. And you know that great sound? Have you ever had that feeling of being fantastically alone? When it suddenly goes, the Star Spangled Banner, the Marines are through, and then it goes, and on comes the white. He looks for a second. He gets up and he turns channels. White. Clunch. All the way. Clunk, 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 clunk. White. It's the Neanderthal man at bay. His TV has been cut off. Well, one night, one night at 2 o'clock in the morning, in the middle of one of those interminable movies with Trevor Howard, all of a sudden, after a commercial, on the... Dun, 
and 87 million guys who had been in lethargy since World War II. This is a classified film. Hey, Madge! Hey, 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 Madge! His wife's asleep. Hey, Madge, here's that film coming on. No, it ain't Leslie Howard. Come on. Keep the kids in there. Lock the kids' bedroom. And it actually came on. Well, I suspect at that minute there was more phone calling, more guys calling up other guys. Hey, Charlie, get up. Guess what's on Channel 9? No, it ain't Judy Garland. It's Mickey Mouse. You remember the guy, Charlie? He says, if I can only help other GIs. Yeah, it's on now. Hurry up. You know. <laughs> Oh, there's a lot to be seen in the army. You don't see this side of the army, you know. Oh, yeah, by, by the way, speaking of, speaking of deathless fates, this is W-O-R-A-M. Okay. Now, you realize that there is another army that you don't ever see. Never. And so, I am sitting now at long last. Company K has been put on the alert. And we're in this Midwestern camp. Fantastic camp. There must have been 100,000 million people in it. Barracks as far as the eye could see. And they had a siding that came right into the middle of it with trains. And every night, we're scared out of our skull. We could hear those trains leaving. You could hear companies marching past. You could hear the equipment rattling, you know. They're going. And now it is our turn. Company K is called to attention. I remember Lieutenant Cherry standing out in front of us. And he says, Men, we're going. Everybody. Where? We have just received classified orders. No one will leave the company area. About 15 guys had dates with chicks that were already standing outside the camp, you know, hanging out to the wall. No one will leave the company area. We are leaving at exactly midnight. Check your equipment. I want full field pack. I want it packed, and there will be an inspection. Dismissed. Oh. This is no kidding. We're going. Where I wonder where we're going. And we go back, you know, and there's always about two or three guys, you know, with the bravado. Remember, we're all a cool 17. A cool 18, maybe. And the old man in the outfit is about 19 and a half. So we're going back into the barracks, and the gasser's up in front. He says, ah, hey, Lieutenant Cherry, you know where I can tell you to go. You know, into the PA system. Well... Two hours later, we are all standing out there in front of the company area, full field pack. They have given us K-rations. They have given us our combat arms. That means we've got clips. Can you imagine, can you imagine walking around as a live, living human being with a little medical kit right here on your belt? And in it is a great big bandage with sulfur 
and three ampules of morphine. Somehow, you know, you feel like you're really doing something. Morphine on your belt. Ooh, wow. You got a great big trench knife hanging down, and you're going. Big steel helmet. Wait. We're standing out there in the darkness, and back of us is our train. Now, I don't know what you think of trains, but this is a special train. It's our train. It's just laying there in the dark, and two or three guys, you know, with the big lanterns, they're walking up and down. They're official railroad men. And we can see way down at the end of the train, guys were already being loaded. And now it's our turn. Lieutenant Cherry says, All right, company, attention. First thing I want to tell you, there will be a detail list that will be on the bulkhead near the rear, back by the latrine. Check your name on the detail if you're on detail. Report to Sergeant Kowalski. You will be checked up by name and platoon as we go into the cars, beginning with the first platoon. Attention, left face, by platoons, mount cars. Bloom. In we go. Oh, each one, they're checking us off. Now we're in our train. Well, you know how they fix a troop train? It's got big pipes running up. It's not like any train you ever saw. They got bunks up on top. Everybody hangs his equipment. They sit down and wait. We're just waiting now. And we begin to roll, finally, into the darkness. Hour after hour after hour we roll. It's now about four o'clock in the morning. We're snoozing and dozing. There are guys moving up and down the train. We have no idea where we're going. You can hear the stuff clanking. And they had a rule that we had to keep all the windows closed to prevent knowledge of troop movements. We had no idea where we're going, see. And then at 5 o'clock in the morning, I am lying in my bunk. I'm sacked out. When all of a sudden, I get the flashlight in the eye. Come on, Mac. KP. <laughs> KP on a troop train. What the heck? What is it? I'm a corporal. Get out of here, Mac. Oh, and 30 seconds later, I am in the KP car. Now, you've never seen that kind of KP. You might have seen Private Hargrove. But have you ever wondered how they eat on troop trains? It's incredible. It's like a, a fantastic, completely out of control H&H. &H. It's like a horn and heart art that has gone ape. It's like the biggest, unbelievable cafeteria line you've ever seen. And they had this open car with great big bins of oatmeal, great big GI cans, and it's hot and we're sweating. And there's this endless crowd of guys going through with their mess kits, you know. And we're serving them oatmeal, plop, you know, plop. One after the other, plop, plop. And they're just walking like this, you know, plop. Once in a while you go, plop, plop. And you know, they don't even say anything. They just go like, move on. They lick, you know. Hey, when you're in the army, you get used to all kinds of stuff. You know, it comes anyway, any direction. So they're walking through, and it goes on and on. It was such a fantastically hard job that it was like I was out of my head. They just keep going, and every ten minutes they say, "Come on, back to the car. We're gonna wash the pots and pans. Let's go." And I'm washing pots and pans. Then I back out and go plop. Boy, you really learn about the human digestive system, I'll tell you. Incredible animals we are. We just eat. We're slobs, pigs. 
You know, you have no idea how it feels to wash a GI can, which a 32-gallon garbage can is what it is, that's full of cigar butts, old tennis shoes, and burnt oatmeal. Well, hour after hour, and standing next to me is a guy in my company named Ernie. Ernie is from another platoon. He's just a guy I saw, you know, but he's in my company. So Ernie, all day long, me and Ernie are doing this thing. We've got nothing on but our shorts. So hot. We're wearing shorts, GI shoes, nothing else, dog tags. You got the scene? Back and forth we go. All right, let's go, Ernie, for crying out loud. And behind Ernie is Gasser. The three of us are working as a team, see? Working away. And finally comes twilight. And the last GI has glutted himself. The last pot has been cleaned. It is a pastoral moment. You, you know that great feeling of having accomplished a gigantic, rotten job. And you really did it, you know? It's like if they said to you, build the pyramids. Go ahead, build them by 2 o'clock, Mac. And you build them, you know, you finish and you say, well, there it is. <sighs> Boy, man, it's a great sense of accomplishment. And so we're standing in the, we're standing in the kitchen car, me and Ernie, Gasser, and they've got the doors open. And outside you can see the country going by. We are clipping along 60 miles an hour. That train is just rolling. And the breeze is coming in. And now we sit down. All three of us are sitting. I'll never forget this is one of the great, beautiful moments of the war for me. All three of us are sitting on the edge of the, on the, edge of the door. You know, the door's open, our feet are hanging out. And we're watching the people. We're watching the little towns. We are in Arkansas, in the heart of darkest Arkansas. And you can see the hills crawling up to the distance, and once in a while you see a little Esso station, and then you see an old ramshackle farmhouse. We're rolling. The three of us are sitting. And then you see the big sign, you know, that says, Eat. <laughs> it's America, you know, we're watching. We're on our way to God knows where. We don't care anymore, you know. We're just dog-tired. Smelling, we stink. We've been sweating all day. We got our shorts on, just the dog tags, our shoes. And the train begins to slow up. Now, it was one of those trains. Have you seen those trains that are on the raised embankment with the gravel that goes down to the ground, you know? You're way up here. And we can see way down there a little road running right parallel to us. And off in the distance is a little town. And we are pulling in to take on water. The train is going chum, 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 chum. Clum, 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 clum. We're looking out, you know, you can see the engine. I can look down there and I see the little caboose light. And it's just getting dark. Beautiful, hot summer night. The temperature is about 90. And you can hear the, you can hear the crickets, the cicadas. You can hear the sound of the birds out there. We're sitting. And right down below us is this little shack. And on top of the little shack is a big neon sign that has one word on it. B-E-E-E-E-E-R. And it's glowing. It's just going like that. You can hear the transformers humming and everything, see? Beer. So we're sitting there looking down. 
And I am feeling flush. I have three and a half dollars left for my pay for the month. And sitting next to me is Ernie. And on the other side is Gasser. And I say, uh, hey, how about a beer? How about a beer? Gasser says, yeah. And Ernie says, yeah. I said, well, look, I'll pop. I'll pop which one of you will go. And Gasser says, I'll flip you, Ernie. Ernie says, okay, Gasser, I'll flip you. Boom, up it goes. And the next thing I know, I am slapping a buck into Ernie's hand. And Ernie, his dog tags clanking, is running down over the car. He's tearing down over the gravel, you know, and I see that little figure disappear. And he goes into this little shack, and we can see him in there. You know, he's talking, and the people are talking. A couple of hillbillies are standing there. There you come from, Mac, you know. And you can see the big straw hats, and Ernie's down there. And I see him getting the cans. You know, he's got the cans. And just as he gets the three cans like that, he's got the change. Chug! 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 The train starts to roll. Boom, 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 I look down, I just Ernie. And Gasser says, hey, Ernie! And you see Ernie down there, and he's hitting the guy. He says, hey, Mac, you know what? And he looks up. You can see that instant. The train is gone. It comes tearing out. He looks around. There's the train. Gone. Well, I have engraved in my memory the picture of the fantastic look on Ernie's face. I have never seen a look quite like that on any human face again or before that point. The strange look. His eyes were shining in the dark. You could see his mouth, and it was like his teeth were lit up or something. He's looking like that, and he starts to run up. You know, he's got the big GI shoes. He's running up the gravel embankment. And as he runs up, he slides, you know. He keeps slipping down, and the train is going, choo, 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 choo. Oh, my God. And I'm standing there, come on, Ernie. And Ernie is running. He's not more than a foot and a half from my hand. And I'm hanging on the door, Ernie, Ernie, Ernie. You can hear his dog tags, ding, 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 ding. He's got the beer, he's running. He's got a can opener sticking out of his pocket, you know. And I say, Ernie, drop the beer, come on. He says, are you out of your mind, you nut? Boom, he's running. Well, the train is now really clipping, and all of a sudden he goes into a side slip. And Ernie is not making it. And I can see Gasser standing next. Both of us are looking down. And we can see Ernie is now down on the road, running through the twilight. A lone, solitary GI, dressed only in a pair of old... By the way, these were not Bermuda shorts. These were GI summer issue underwear, M7. And he is running and they're flopping, you know, and your dog tags, ding, 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 ding. I never saw a man run 34 miles in my life. Well, Ernie is running, and you can see him on that road, and way back in the distance, you can see the little beer joint. Ernie is running and running and running, and finally it is obvious. You can see the fireflies. The train is now clipping along at 60 miles an hour. And all we could hear in that murky, Arkansas twilight was the sound of a pair of dog clacks. You could hear the dog tags tinking, tinking in the distance. And now Ernie is gone. Disappeared. Gasser looks at me. I look at Gasser. 
What are we going to do? He's gone. What's he going to do? I don't know. We're off KP, see? This is, well, maybe we better go back and tell Lieutenant Cherry. He says, tell Lieutenant Cherry I'm not. What are you talking about? So both of us go back to our car, and we see Lieutenant Cherry. He's snoozing back there. And I sit down on my seat. Gasser sits on his across the aisle. We got our fatigues on. And then suddenly Cherry comes back. He gets up and walks back down the aisle. He said, uh, you guys don't have to be on KP for the rest of the trip. We were due in, by the way, in an hour and a half, you know. He said, you don't have to be in. He said, by the way, where's Ernie? Where's Ernie? I said, well, uh, uh, Ernie stopped off for a beer. He said, Ernie did what? I said, Ernie stopped off for beer, Lieutenant. I, it's a beer. He wanted a beer. He said, they do not serve beer on this train. Where did he stop off for a beer? I said, well, well I think it was a place called Joe's Rest. Uh, he said, have you lost Ernie? I said, yeah, we lost Ernie. By the way, it was the only time I ever heard of a GI signing a statement of charges for another G.I. lost. You know? <laughs> That's a real in-joke there. Well, you know, I sat back in that car in the darkness. We were on our way to the POE. We had no idea where we were going. And all I could think about was Ernie. Gasser. Two o'clock in the morning, he wakes up. And he comes down through the dark court. He wakes me up. He says, Shep, are you sure he really didn't come on? Are you sure? I says, he's, he's gone, Gasser. He's gone. Well, two years after the war, I get a call from Gasser from the coast. I haven't seen Gasser for years. He went to Germany. I went to Africa. We never saw each other. I get this call. Now, on the other end of the line is this guy. He says, Shepard? I said, yes, this is Shepard. Do you remember me? My name is Herbert Gasser. <laughs> oh, Gasser, you old son of a gun. Oh, you owe me $4, Gasser. <laughs> remember that chick? I remember, yeah, you owe me four bucks, Gasser. He says, no, Shep, look, I'll, I'll send you the $4. One thing I want to ask you about. Did you ever hear any more about Ernie? <laughs> I says, no, Gasser, I didn't. He says, do you think he's still out there? <laughs> And suddenly it hit me. I can see right at this very minute. Now, July 1965, there is a gaunt figure <laughs> wearing a pair of archaic army shoes of World War II, battered and torn. His dog tags are worn to a mere nubbin. He's got three cans of beer. And he is hiding out in the woods. He's afraid of the MPs. Have you ever heard about those Japanese that are out there on those islands? They don't know the war is over? Well, have, do you know anything about Arkansas? Well, I, 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 I suspect that out there in the darkness right now, my friend Ernie doesn't know it's over. 
Ernie, wherever you are, are you aware, Ernie, that you were posthumously made a T5? <laughs> Ernie, you've got back pay coming wherever you are, Ernie. And Ernie, gang, let's call out to Ernie. You know, he may be hearing us somewhere. He may be skulking outside. He may be skulking outside of a bootlegger's cabin right now, listening to the radio. Let's all tell Ernie it's over. All together, gang, it's over, Ernie! Come on home, Ernie! Come on home! Give him a hand! Well, let me tell you that the picture of Ernie, when I saw Ernie disappearing into the distance, that forever will remain to me probably the most vivid picture of all the peculiar little things that I carry out of, you know, you carry out of the war. One other fantastic image that I have, which I will never forget. How many of you were ever issued glasses in the Army? This is an experience you cannot believe. For, you know, Americans are very medical-minded. And Americans somehow think all of medicine is very official. That any time a guy's a doctor, he's official. Well, somehow or other, they give me an eye examination and they decide I need glasses. I says, glasses, all right, you know, okay. Somehow the idea of getting a new pair of glasses that you never had before is exciting. So I'm sitting in the clinic about to get a pair of glasses. This is at a place, incidentally, this is a place that later grew to rival in infamy Pearl Harbor itself. A place called Camp Crowder. Oh, it's an incredible place. And I'm sitting there in the clinic. Boy, what a scene. I'll never forget the scene. And there's about 45 goof-offs around me. All these guys are on sick call, see? And I'm there to get a pair of glasses. When suddenly they wheel in a GI. And he's on a stretcher. And we're watching him. He's watching us. We're all sitting there. And the GI suddenly starts to say, Hey, fellas. Will you call Company D and tell them, a, tell them that Olsen is here? I'll so I figure, you know, I figure, well, I'm going to do something about this guy. So I say, hey, doctor, the, the man is talking. He says, oh, don't worry about him. He's finished. I said, what? Yeah, he's got some rare disease. He's done. Don't worry about him. Next. Who's next? Me. Well, they give me an eye examination. You know what the machines... Ever since that time, I've had a suspicion of these machines. You know, with the little red crosses, little yellow crosses? He says, tell me when you uh, see that uh, the two numbers come together. Which is brightest? Okay. All right, now, I'm out here. Tell me now where the two lines cross. When they cross, tell me. They're moving. It's very official. And I get through. I take off my jacket he gives me. He says, okay, here's your glasses. And for the first time in my life, I can't see. <laughs> I absolutely can't see. He's great. He gives me these two marbles, you know, they put on the back. And they're real tight. They pinch my nose. My nose is sticking out, you know. It's like it's like a tube of toothpaste. And I go, wah, wah, wah. I'm walking around. He says, I can't see. He says, next. Let's go. Come on, G.I. Get out of the way. Next. Well, I walk out in the sunlight, and I take these things off, and I can see the, you know, the camp again. I get back to my company area, 
The first sergeant calls me into the orderly room and he says, we've got a message from the clinic. You gotta wear your glasses all the time. I said, what do you mean? I can't see out of these things. Wear them glasses. I got like this. I walk out, you know. The next day, we're on the rifle range. I'm with my glasses. I can't see anything. There's three people moving around in front of me all the time. You know, and they keep hollering, Stand still, Shepard. You're in attention. I'm moving. <laughs> well, this went on for a week. I have a splitting headache. I'm telling you, I've got a headache. You know the kind of headache you can grab on top up here, you know? You can feel it. It's round, and it's got little things sticking out of it, little hooks and stuff on it. Ooh! And every time I get out in company, every time I get out, I, the, the old sergeant says, Shepard, you got your glasses on? Ah, okay. Well, one week goes by. I can't stand it. I finally go back to the clinic. I go in to see the captain. I say, Captain, I can't see out of these glasses. He said, well, let me see them. What's your name? I said, Shepard, JP, 16098946. He said, you're not. You're Simonson, LP. <laughs> 35098-1642. I said, no, no. I gave you the wrong glasses. I said, oh, that solves the problem. Give me my glasses. He gives me my glasses, and the world is black. Well, for three and a half years, I carried those green glasses at the bottom of my Army trunk. They cost the U.S. Army $75, I understand, and today I use them as a paperweight. Well, thank you very much, Gene Shepard. It's time to go.